Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Chapter 51. Lydia is Lydia still, but she's now Lydia Wickham. Lydia and Wickham got married off of the page and returned to Longbourn. This is a moment in which the sharp edges of the structure of the novel become clear again. As Tara Menon told us at the beginning of the season, Pride and Prejudice's dialogue is inverted for most novels of the time. It's typical in Georgian and Victorian novels for there to be a lot of exposition at the beginning of the book, and then a lot of dialogue in the middle, and then exposition at the end again. Pride and Prejudice is the opposite, and the plot matches that formula. The Bennett sisters were all together at the beginning of the novel. Then many of them went off, Jane to London, Lizzie to Kent, and then Derbyshire, and Lydia to Brighton. But now they're all together again, and so the chatting is back up. The direct speech, of course, increases now that Lydia is back in the house. Not only is she unrepentant about running off with Wickham, she is loud about it. She goes around town showing off her ring. She tells Jane that Jane is now a lower status than she is because Jane is unmarried. She can't even keep secrets quietly. Lydia is difficult in this chapter, but also I love her. As we heard from Ellen Stockstill a few episodes ago, Lydia has an uncommon trajectory for a fallen woman character. Instead of being sent away and punished, she's welcomed back into Longbourn. And although we have reason to believe that she won't be happy in her marriage, I love that Austin wrote her as a version of thriving. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Lydia's situation. So what I'm thinking about is there's this essay by Judith Lauder-Newton, which really reads the novel as a fantasy of female power. The, The ideology of the text allows for this fantasy that women and women's desires and women's kinds of ways are allowed to exist in Pride and Prejudice. And that's part of the fantasy that makes it attractive, that while somebody like Mr. Bennett and Mr. Darcy, even Mr. Collins have, we know they have cultural economic power, but in Pride and Prejudice, female desire ends up being its own kind of potent power. And even as I say, Lydia is going to be unhappy. It is also true that Lydia gets what she wants. I always think of that letter she writes to Kitty and she says, you know, I laugh. I laugh because I have this man that I wanted. 
And so, yeah, I'd say that it's it's not just a fantasy of female power, but also a fantasy of what women's power can do for the family, because it is Mrs. Bennett's desire to have Lydia and Wickham back, right, that, that prevails. So I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of the text. So I'd say that fantasy of familial inclusivity is linked to the way, in general, the novel gives women what they want. Not all of the women have what they want on this visit, though. Jane and Lizzie want Lydia and Wickham gone. Wickham is being smooth as ever, but Lizzie still, understandably, finds him intolerable. So the only thing that makes the Wickhams stay bearable is the fact that it will only be 10 days, and then they'll be gone, basically forever, up to the north. But before Mrs. Wickham is off, her incessant chatting gets her into trouble one more time. Lydia insists on telling the story of her wedding to Lizzie and Jane. And while forcing this story on her sisters, let's slip a very interesting detail. Mr. Darcy was at the wedding. She's like, oops, I shouldn't have told you that. He made me promise that I wouldn't tell anybody. And virtuous Jane is like, told us what? Wink, wink. We will ask no follow-up questions and we will not speak of it again. Lizzie, on the other hand, desperately wants to know why Darcy was at Lydia and Wickham's wedding. She won't give Lydia the satisfaction of asking, but immediately writes to her aunt, Mrs. Gardner, begging for the details. Chapter 51 starts with Mrs. Gardner's reply. Lizzie takes it outside to read it privately. Mrs. Gardner reveals that Mr. Darcy is a white horse shining armor hero in the whole Lydia affair. He found her, he tried to get her away from Wickham, and when it became clear that Lydia would not go gently, finally negotiated with and paid Wickham off. The negotiations between Wickham and Darcy apparently went on for days. The gardeners wanted to give Darcy all of the credit for straightening everything out, but Darcy refused to take it. He said that the whole affair was his fault. He should have outed Wickham long ago. And so he refuses to take the credit now. Then Mrs. Gardner says it directly to Lizzie in clear writing. He obviously did this for you. And when you're married, I want a tour of Pemberley. Lizzie finishes the letter and sits there having a well-warranted total overthinking meltdown about this letter. Could he have really done this for me? No, he did it because he felt guilty. Even if he did do this for me, he'd never marry me. I yelled at him. I rejected him. I am destroyed by my sister's affair. And now I'm related to his number one enemy on earth. But would he still marry me? Wickham interrupts Lizzie's moment of quiet spiraling, clearly trying to temperature check Lizzie. What did she learn on her trip to Derbyshire? Which lies has she caught on to? When he tries to present his well-trodden victimhood narrative, Lizzie is sweet and polite as she tells him that she knows he's full of shit. But she does let him off easy. She's good-humored and lets him kiss her hand. And Wickham, like Lydia, doesn't get a full comeuppance. He will exit the novel in relatively good grace with the family. Here is Elsie Mitchie on how Wickham, arguably the most villainous villain in all of Austen, comes by his easy escape. 
Austin's fascinated, I think, by sort of charming young men, right, who who are not reliable and not moral, but are also enticing. And I mean, she's probably working in part with the figure of the rake, right, from earlier 18th century literature. So these men who don't abide by moral rules. And that's more how I would read Wickham. I mean, I think I think Wickham is a survivor. At every juncture, he's managed to get more money out of somebody. I don't see him as needy particularly. I see him as someone who, who manipulates the system actually quite well. I mean, when does anything really bad happen to Wickham? Never. And it's interesting because nothing really bad happens to Lydia either. It's not a novel in which people are punished particularly, I think. Wickham and Lydia might not be punished, but we end the chapter hopeful that Lizzie will be rewarded. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, I just want to talk about how confused I feel about how much I love Lydia in this chapter. So please teach me something else before I just yell my feelings at you for an hour. (laughs) I will have feelings to yell back and maybe we will be a very unusual fan club. I am not in the Wickham fan club, though. And let's talk about let's talk about Wickham for a minute. Right. And what this future means for him, why they are going to the north, how he has been rescued with some element of respect in the world. So we talked earlier in this season about what it means to be in the militia. And this is different. This means that he has left the emergency reserves that are have been risen to protect against the French, and he is now being sent to the north. The way that this has happened is that Like you can purchase a smaller commission in the militia for a temporary basis, you can purchase a bigger commission in the army. And this is a tradition that went all the way back to medieval days. The idea was that if you could afford to buy your way into the army, you had some investment in the country and therefore you were the sort of person who would protect it because you would think of it as yours somewhat. An interesting element of all of this is that this is the way that people could class jump at this time. So suddenly there's a middle class of people who have a little bit of money that they wouldn't have had in previous eras. And instead of just being ordinary tradesmen or professionals, they could class jump by becoming officers. Officers were considered gentlemen, right? An officer and a gentleman, not just a movie title. And you wouldn't be considered a gentleman if you were just an ordinary middle-class worker, but if you could pony up for entry into the officer corps, all of a sudden, you were in a different class. And so, you know, there's something that feels a little unseemly to the old gentry around this in the same way that the emerging middle class people like Bingley and the nouveau riche, like this was all an affront to the very, very old system of class in England. I mean, there are so many things that are fascinating about that. The first is just that there is almost an acknowledgement of the difference between class and money. Because the idea that you could pay money to buy class, to like class wash yourself, intimates that you have enough money to be in that class. You just can't be in that class. And yeah, there's something like honest about that. 
<laughs> like, hey, class isn't just about money here. You can purchase your way into it. It's corrupt and confusing, but also honest. It's also interesting when we think about who constitutes a military and how that has become something that connotes lower class and the politics of class in very, very different ways, not just in the U.S., but in England, too. I mean, we don't think necessarily other than maybe Prince Harry getting in his helicopter and going off to Afghanistan that that this is something that people of means or of, of class heritage will be willing to go do. But that, of course, was a very different age, an age in which this was part of gallantry and masculinity and the motherland. Yeah, but to some extent, I think people are still sold on the idea, at least in the United States, that the military can be a way to class jump. Sure, and a way to have a chance at some element of job security, which Mm -hmm. is a real crisis in England in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The difference is, obviously, Wickham has ended up here by holding Lydia for ransom. If it were not for essentially the kidnapping of a 15-year-old, he would be in debtor's prison. He's behaving completely within the law and using a a young girl as, as currency. Not intentionally, right? And I'm only pointing that out because he's not smart enough to use her as currency. She, like, won't leave. And then he's like, oh, I guess you are a bartering chip. But he's ready to leave her and go find a wealthier wife. He's not even a smart asshole. (laughs) It's true. And maybe that's why he feels a little less villainous than like the great villains of literature. Sure. (laughs) Is he doesn't have enough cleverness to truly manipulate a situation. He's just that dude. Yeah. If Lydia would have gone with Darcy, Wickham would have nothing. And Darcy could ruin him and essentially send him to debtor's prison. Lydia's the best thing that ever happened to Wickham. I hate him so much. I know. And reading through that scene where he and Lizzie, towards the end of of what we read for today, are trying to sort of tiptoe around each other with their old references and their old charm. It really, it just feels so dire, doesn't it? To, To feel like we were seduced by it in the beginning and now we know how bankrupt it is. But Lauren, you know, the way that Austin writes Wickham, Austin has no hope for Wickham, right? Austin is not giving a sign that Wickham is changed by this, humiliated by the confrontation with Darcy. And in fact, like, I think we have reason to be scared that Darcy is still kind of being irresponsible by sending Wickham north where no one is going to know what a bad guy he is and he can wreak havoc again. And I'm not saying that there's a better option out there. I think we should treat people like they deserve more than one chance. And maybe there's a hope that, like, he's going to have some sort of military official in the North that will keep him under tight wraps and, you know, who knows. But Austin is not pointing us to, like, he's going to go North and start a new life. It's he's going to go North and watch out North. He's coming. Right. And I think that Austin is also telling us this very directly about Lydia, that Lydia also needs to be banished and is never going to change. Right. She says it was not to be supposed that time would give Lydia the embarrassment from which she had been so wholly free at first. 
Lydia is Lydia. There is not going to be reflection. There's not going to be humility. There's not going to be change. Or so Austin says. I mean, I would like to think we're talking about a 15-year-old girl who's like newly in love for the first time and in the throes of sexual pleasure for the first time and has finally achieved the only thing that seems to matter in her mother's eyes. She's 15. Who is she going to be at 25, 35, 45? But I think that unfortunately... Wickham is fixed. And maybe the best thing that can happen to Lydia is that he will go off in search of some new northern money attached to a a northern woman and that Lydia will be maybe heartbroken but freed in some way. It's all conjecture. It's all fan fiction. What can I tell you? (laughs) I think that that leads us so well into the sentence that we wanted to look closely at today, which is Lydia was Lydia still, untamed, unabashed, wild, noisy, and fearless. It's just worth pausing and I think like word by word wondering which of these words is a condemnation and which of them is like a life sentence and which is actually maybe a compliment. Like, I don't know. Lydia is still fearless. She's just had this very scary thing happen to her, and she is fearless still. And that can belie how little she understood the situation and the danger that she was in. It can make her like pathological, someone who's never scared of anything. But to me, it makes her 16. (laughs) And I don't know. I love fearless people. That to me is, is free. But do you think that Austin is seeing that? As a condemnation? I mean, I think that these words and what we think a powerful female is supposed to be, I think that it's all just changed so much, right? Yeah. These are all words that that you would be encouraged to raise a girl to be right now, right? Like it's every old Navy t-shirt is like, be fearless. (laughs) Or like, a parenting book, like how to raise an unabashed, untamed girl. Like these are now things that in the wake of second and third wave feminism that we consider to be goals for who a girl should be. Maybe not for who a woman should be. Like I think that there that gets a little bit complicated. I think that the world still judges and fears women who are untamed unabashed and fearless. You know, I mean, by the time we are of the age to sort of be like domesticated, cowed by motherhood, become wives, etc. These are not great things about us anymore, as much as we might wear the t-shirt, buy the bumper sticker, etc. There are tons of mixed messages that still exist in our society. But yes, these are the goals. Like these are who we are supposed to be as free people. And that is clearly not what anything was in Austin's age. However, I think that there's this interesting element, which is we are seeing Jane as abashed as we've ever seen her. And she's sort of like a big, lame eye roll in these chapters, right? That contrast is so explicit where we have Lydia who is not afraid to say anything or think anything or be so fully herself, whereas Jane is the one who's saying, oh, well, if there's a secret about Darcy, don't worry, we won't ask you anything about it. She just seems to have the vapors about everything. Everything is giving her agita and making her quiet and just the lamest Jane of all Janes. And I think that 
the antithesis to Lydia is not exactly desired either, which leaves us with Lizzie. I mean, I think that this is how we end up with Lizzie as such a compelling heroine as we have sort of the best of both of them. Yeah, which leads me to believe that Noisy is the real offender because to some extent, Lizzie is untamed, right? She's about to yell at Lady Catherine de Bourgh. She's abashed. She's ashamed of her sister, but she's unabashed in some ways. She's a little wild. She likes to go on long walks. She's a little fearless. She's going to, again, like tell off Lady Catherine and hint to Darcy that she'd be open to another proposal. But she's not noisy. And God save the noisy women. (laughs) I mean, I think so much of it is about manners too, right? Well-mannered is not noisy. And we see how well-mannered Lizzie is with Wickham at the end of this reading. And even if she's doing it incredibly ironically in a way that gives me great pleasure, you know, she's still going through the paces. She's still saying the things that you say. Lydia does not go through the paces or say the things that you say. She doesn't even seem to understand that there are things that one says. To her, it's all it's all absurd, I think. And I find her incredibly refreshing and liberating if, like, immature and embarrassing at the same time. Yeah, I think that the reason that I love her in this chapter is, I think, for the reason that Roxanne Everly pointed us to, which is... I love that she's unpunished and unharmed. Georgiana was so harmed by Wickham. And this girl was kidnapped. And she's, like, completely surviving and has no shame about something that, in my opinion, she should have no shame about. And I don't think that the novel thinks that she should have no shame about it. But it's amazing how well it's written for a 21st century audience. And I think that Austin's lesson is that like with a kind, generous family and a knight in shining armor like Darcy, girls get second chances and they don't always deserve them as maybe Lydia doesn't. But like all it takes is like a secret and one good guy. And Lydia is kind of saved. And I just feel like I still watch TV shows and movies and read books where the sexual young woman gets punished. And it, it just, like, blows my mind that in 1813, there's a depiction of a sexual young woman who gets to tell her older hot sister, get behind me, I landed a guy. And I just, <laughs> I want her to stay completely obtuse to how awful her situation is because I want her to be happy. I mean, I do think that we are expected to assume that danger lurks in her future. Totally. I mean, and it does. That being He's sent a gambling away addiction. With Wickham. Yeah, no, it's that it's, you know, but however, if she maintains these qualities that I think are supposed to damn her in many ways, they're actually what's going to save her, right? Yeah, it's hard. I feel the professors and experts that we're talking to warning against this reading of Lydia, but I think it would be really easy for Austin to have ruined Lydia. And she gives her a dignified ruination or, I don't know. I I love that it's more complicated than simply ruination. I think it has a lot to do with girls' relationship with shame and the idea that shame is supposed to be so totalizing, especially if it's related to sex. 
And I think the fact that Lydia does not feel shame is this incredible power and something that I think was probably pretty anathema to Austen and her readership and readership still. But that's what I think so much of this hinges on. And I think that all of these words in this in this quote, Lydia was Lydia still, untamed, unabashed, wild, noisy, and fearless. They are all words that are not mired in shame. Yeah. You know, there's this moment in the like completely fictionalized biopic Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway. It's not a movie I like. I find it morally objectionable. It gives this man a lot of credit for Austin's ideas. It's a very problematic movie, but there's this great moment at the end of the movie where Jane Austen, this fictionalized version, is talking to Cassandra Austen. And Cassandra's fiance has just died and is depressed. And Jane Austen has just given up on this great love. And so they're both sad. And she sits down to write Pride and Prejudice. And she tells Cassandra, I'm going to write a novel about two women who get the best guys who are wealthy and nothing bad happens to any of the sisters. So I love thinking about that when I think about Austen's six novels, uh, six published novels, that This is the fantasy novel. This is the wish fulfillment novel where even your fuck up sister is like kind of fine. Yeah. And Georgiana is okay, right? Like even the sort of like off the page victims are okay. It's like Austin created this safe space for us to explore darkness without descending into it. I think that's amazing. And I think that's why this book has lasted in the way that it has. Yeah. And why within her six published books, this is the one that has elevated itself as something that continues to shape culture and shape what romance is to people. But can we parse a little bit more whether we really think that nothing bad has happened to Lydia? Yes. Because, you know, on the one hand... In our last episode, and even the one before that, I think that I was feeling very much like, oh my God, now she's forced to marry this guy. He's a nightmare. She's just 16. This is going to determine the rest of her life. She's now being removed from her family, removed from the South with this guy who we all know is bad news, we can't trust, et cetera. And yet the thing that makes me feel in these chapters, really different than I did in the preceding ones, is her agency. She's the one who says to Darcy, this is my man. I want my man. I don't care if I marry him tomorrow. I don't care if I marry him in five months. We are getting married because this is my love and I'm not going anywhere. And that's just enough for me to feel a little different about this. That, you know, she may be rash and immature about how she sees him and how she sees this situation, but it's her will in part that's making this happen. This is where it's not fully a kidnapping. I mean, obviously, she has been lured into a situation with false hopes, but she has just manifested those hopes (laughs) at like great expense. (laughs) And no one is going to tell her otherwise. This is her darling Wickham. He's going to shoot all the partridges on the first day of hunting season. Like, this is he this is, is going to wear his wants. blue coat to the wedding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with everything you said, and I love it. And I hope that Lydia's will protects her. And I'm just like, 
Lydia's having affairs up north. Lydia's having a great time. There's some people who can tolerate the emotional distress of debt. I don't know. Like, God bless them. They might be having a great time, not living the life that I would enjoy, but... But imagining that conversation between Darcy and Lydia where she says to him, he's my man, you can't stop me, I am just fascinated to know if it's Lydia's will or Darcy's kindness that allows that to unfold the way that it does. Darcy is a magistrate. He's one of the wealthiest men in England. If he wanted to take Lydia by her ear back home, he could. And Lydia is saying, no, I won't go with you. And I think that that matters. But I also think it shows us something about Darcy, that he did not feel comfortable or did not feel empowered. Or, you know, when it was like, fine, Lydia, you want him? Fuck you. You can have him. But I do think it tells us something about Darcy also. Or it's saying, yeah, I'm in love with your sister. And the biggest knock against your sister is how embarrassing you and your mother are. So let's just at least move you far, far away so that this kind of behavior does not touch Pemberley or the reputation of my dear Lizzie. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is in many ways a selfish act to sort of maintain the decorum of the life that he wants to build with Lizzie. And we all know the biggest issue has been the family. Yeah, which is why it's so beautiful to know that he just tried to get her away from him. Right? Like his first attempt was like, I found you. Come with me. We will figure this out. And then Lydia's like, no, I'm going to stay. And he's like, well, okay. <laughs> you know? But he was working against his self-interest. He's working against his self-interest kind of no matter what. But I agree. This works out well for Darcy. <laughs> where he's like, Okay. Now, none of you are ever my problem again. Go away. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Lauren, before we wrap up talking about these chapters, we have to talk about the greatest Ant in the World Award, which goes to oh, Mrs. Mrs. Gardner. Gardner. How much do we love her? How much do we love her? Right? Yeah. I. She's like, 
dude, I tried to yell at your sister. She wouldn't listen. You find out how much she did for Lydia in this letter. And then also you're just like, dude, this guy's in love with you. But the biggest thing, the biggest thing I love about Mrs. Gardner is she was going to keep this secret. She really was. And then as soon as she was given an excuse not to, she was like, thank God I want to tell you everything. <laughs> it's like integrity and gossip. Oh, the perfect. The perfect. And with a sense of humor. Yes. She's a personality. I mean, you know, when she's saying, yeah, will you be really angry with me, Lizzie, if I tell you how much I like this guy and how much I believe that he loves you? And I'm so sorry that I'm saying this because you don't want me to. And she says, pray forgive me if I have been very presuming or at least do not punish me so far as to exclude me from P, Pemberley. I shall never be quite happy till I've been all around the park. A low phaeton with a nice little pair of ponies would be the very thing. Yeah. I mean, she is just dining out on this. And I love her. I love her. She just seems like such a contemporary, like, this is a woman I'd be friends with who's like, great, you married up. I'm going to keep some ponies in the stall and I'm not going to be happy until I do whatever. I just, yeah, what a good auntie. Love it. I love it. And she's also totally saying like, yeah, he's stubborn and he's not as much fun as you are. But guess what? You're going to bring the fun and I'm going to be there for it. I know. Again, it's like, It says something about the fact that, like, you have to not say the thing for long enough to earn the right to say the thing. She's wanted to say this to Lizzie for weeks, and she hasn't. But the fact that she stayed silent for so long, I think, kind of gives her the right, now that she has this extra piece of information, to be like, dude, come on. Like, look alive here. He loves you. And same with keeping the Lydia Darcy secret, right? She's like, okay, Nobody's asking me, and I was told to keep a secret. And then she's like, someone's asking me. Situation has changed. And it's just, it shows that she's thoughtful before she blabs, right? Which is the difference between her and Mrs. Bennett. We love Mrs. Gardner for blabbing, but we love her for being a little bit thoughtful and reticent first. I also love that she says, don't tell anyone, but you can tell Jane. She knows how painful it is to have a secret. She knows how painful it is to not be able to unburden your heart about something that involves you. And, you know, she's saying, I trust you to be able to talk about this in a way that you need. And I think that's really lovely. Yeah. Well, Lauren, in the next few chapters, Wickham goes away and Bingley comes back. We're going to watch our Jane get the beginning of her happy ending. And as much as I have trash-talked Jane today, I want her to have every last bit of it. No, you don't. You hate her. I do. I do. I just, she's not, she's not my people, but I want her to be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you just sounded like such a yanta. <laughs> she's not my people, but I want her to be happy. <laughs> So there's this moment in the reading we did for this week where Lydia insists that she walks into dinner in front of Jane because she now takes her place at the front of the line as a married woman. It was this thing at the time called precedence. And it sparked our curiosity about what this precedence means, how it plays out in all these daily ways inside the Bennett family. 
where people sit, how they behave, but more than that, how it frames motivation in the book and beyond. So we wanted to find a historian who could enlighten us. And lo and behold, we found one. We found Amy Harris at BYU, who wrote a book called No Less, Siblinghood and Social Relations in Georgian England. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, Amy. Hi. I'm so glad that you could join us. One thing I've been wondering about thinking about this moment and about Lydia, you know, at the bottom of the pack and then getting married, although getting married to someone who isn't coming with land estate, in fact, is coming with a lot of baggage. Is Lydia still kind of class jumping within the family, even if she's not class jumping within society? Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, Yes, marital status, marriage for women brings status across the social divide, but especially in kind of a landed family that that social status tied to marital status. Yeah, really important. But would there have been a whole practice of how you walk into a dining room, where you actually sit based on birth order, you know, all these things that seem to not just make status within a society, but also within a family? I don't know necessarily about where you sat at dinner with guests, because the guests would change the dynamic, right? So I don't know if Wickham is going to change the dynamic in some way, who's sitting where at dinner. But marriage isn't so much about property when it comes to within the family sometimes, but it's about adult status. And so especially if she could, if she's going to be a householder and a married woman, then she has adult status. And Jane and Elizabeth kind of don't quite yet. (laughs) So then, yeah, so she's claiming adult status as much as she's claiming a hierarchy just to put her sisters down, right? She's sort of saying, well, I'm, I've achieved adult status. You haven't. Exactly as she's acting like a bratty little sister. Yeah, right, right. At precisely the same moment, yeah. We learn earlier in the novel that the reason that Fitzwilliam is just sort of ordinarily, boringly comfortable <laughs> while Darcy gets Pemberley and everything is, of course, due to birth order. And I wonder if in this situation, thinking about capital and not just social capital, but actual land, money, you name it, if birth order is actually far more significant when it comes to men. That's a real, I, men in property classes. Yeah. So, but, but but women in property classes, so there's this great book by Amy Erickson that talks about this, where families in early modern, they they don't want to split up their estates. The law does not require they give those states to the eldest son, but tradition does. So they do that, but they know that's unjust to their daughters. So they give them more cash and household goods, but they'll do it in birth order ranking. So the oldest girl will get 500 pounds and the next one, 400 pounds and the next three, 300 pounds or whatever. So it is having an impact on the girls as well. And in your sort of laboring classes up to the lower ends of the skilled trades, they don't have the property to rank that. But when they do in the wills, you do see birth order. Gender, we all expect to see there, but it's kind of birth order and marital status. So married daughters will get nothing because they're provided for by their husband. And so the single daughters are going to get more money in their birth order. <laughs> so it has a huge impact on men's actual capital in the property classes that makes such a huge difference. But then at a microcosm in families, both men and women are getting birth order is affecting their 
And marital status does not affect boys. That's the big difference too in their inheritance like it does for girls. That is a very big difference. How would these dynamics affect sibling rivalry? Yeah, this is, I mean, the 18th century is full of advice literature telling parents, don't, you know, don't create rivalry between your children. Oh, but make sure marital status, gender, and age hierarchies are always maintained, right? (laughs) So good luck uh, with that. Um, I think rivalry happens more often when expectations shift or if the person who's supposed to be the oldest son who's the responsible heir to the family patrimony, whatever, doesn't perform his role. And the younger son who gets less capital is forced to step into that role. That causes conflict. This notion of duty, I'm wondering how marriage changes what it feels like a sibling owes another in a household. Like what who Lydia is supposed to be in relationship to her sisters as a dutiful sister pre and post marriage. So there is a lifelong expectation for siblings. They are the longest relationship you ever have. And marital status does not change that you have obligations to them. What those obligations look like will probably shift and involve things like letting your children visit for long stretches or helping your child get in an apprenticeship or employing your child, but you have a lifelong obligation to your siblings that will fluctuate a bit with financial standing of the household, but they will, they will demand that kind of reciprocity your whole life. And so does it feel like, not that Lydia was necessarily a great sister before she marries, but now it's just beyond? Yeah, she was, I don't think she ever felt duty. She, as the youngest, probably felt, well, I don't, I don't owe you anything. Then once she's married, that continues, and she's continuing to misunderstand her behavior as a sibling, even as a married woman, is causing problems for her sisters. There's obviously a very special friendship between Lizzie and Jane. Is that something that you think would exist commonly between sisters? Absolutely. Anybody who studies early modern 19th century, 20th century families encounters the incredible relationships for sisters, especially in a society that diminishes women's educational and occupational opportunities. They stick together. And so a lot of times you'll get, you know, unmarried sisters living together as a financial necessity, but often those are really rich and rewarding relationships as well. And they tend to, I know of many families where some family members marry, some don't, but then spouses die and some of their siblings are still there and they'll move back in together. So they'll start their life in a nursery, the property classes, women, and they'll end their life in the same house with the same set of relationships. And so it's a relationship that spans 60 years and has seen all the ups and downs. Yeah, there's incredibly strong sibling ties in the 18th century and 19th century. So does it seem to you that sibling rivalry when it's really acted out upon, is something that feels like a little bit more of a modern invention, almost a luxury, or maybe the flip side to the advantages of modernity? I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I don't want to undersell that there's no tension in siblings. But if you're living in a century where they're just going to outlast any other relationship, which is true now, but we just don't think of them that way. And you're much more financially and socially dependent on one another. 
So you kind of have to work stuff out at some level to just make a go of it in the world. And then, you know, post-industrialization, what industrialization has done to the way we do work, where work is so separate from home and we're very atomized, right, that our education is our own, our finances are our own, our work is our own. So we're encouraged to differentiate ourselves from our siblings much younger than they would have been. And a way to differentiate is to compete. So, yeah, I I don't think our version of sibling rivalry would make much sense in the 18th century. They would know sibling conflict. But I think we undersell how important the relationship is now. And some of that's also couplehood is part of a constellation of relationships in the 18th century and early 19th century. It's a really important one. But there's not quite that sort of post-romantic era and Victorian elaboration of it that just narrows all social and emotional intimacy to this one relationship and puts so much pressure on that relationship and diminishes the sort of latticework of supportive relationships is important. Even though they continue, rhetorically, they don't have the same weight. And so I think that's some of it. We're in modern families, we put too much on a couplehood relationship and not enough on these other more lateral, lifelong things. And so then those relationships are allowed to be competitive and rivalrous because we don't think of them as important and as important as couplehood. I keep reading Lydia as a very modern teenager. And I think (laughs) that you've just articulated a lot of the reasons why. Yeah, she fits that pretty well, right? (laughs) Yeah. Amy, this is a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was lovely. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon. But thank you so much to all of you who joined last month. We're so grateful. I love making this podcast and you just make something so important to me possible. And of course, if you can't join our Patreon, just please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And that is a really big help to the show. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Baroness, Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and our two new aristocrats who have just moved into town and joined the ton, Tucker Kratt and Lauren Byer O'Connell. We will knight you accordingly soon. Thanks also to our special guests this week, Roxanne Eberly, Elsie Mitchie, and Amy Harris for talking to us, Lara Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.